All right, turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We are about two-thirds of the way through this psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, and the whole thing is about God's law. The psalmist tells his readers that he loves God's law. It's his delight. It's his comfort. It's his guide. And each verse tells us something different about God's law. And so every verse is something that we can learn about God's law, and every verse has something that we can apply to our lives today. And today we're going to look at verses 117 through 120. We'll take about 15 or 20 minutes to look at those verses, and then with the rest of our time, we will kind of widen out our view to look at another aspect of God's law. We've kind of been focusing on the ceremonial law that God gave to Israel, and we'll do that again today by looking at the laws that separated Israel from the nations around them. We'll see what the purpose of those laws was and how those laws still speak to us today. So follow along as I read Psalm 119, starting in verse 117. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Well, if we look at that first verse, verse 117, hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. We first see the psalmist is recognizing his dependence on God. He asks God to hold him up. It's not something he can do himself. But not only does he recognize his dependence, he has a response then to God's deliverance when it comes. I will have regard for your statutes. That's in the context there, that's the response to what God does in holding him up. And what I want you to see in that verse is that that's the right way for us to think about obedience to God's law. Gratitude is the principle of obedience. Thankfulness to what God has done is the motive for why we keep his law. Thomas Manton says, The more experience that we have of God's grace in preserving us from sin and danger, the more we should be encouraged in his ways. It's like what John says in his letter in 1 John 4, verse 19, We love because he first loved us. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. It's in response to what he's done. You know, Paul, as he writes all, all his letters, the typical pattern that he has, you can break his letters into two parts. The first one is the indicative. The second is the imperative. Those are just big fancy words. It just means the indicative is Paul's telling you what God has done. And the second part is then what you should do. Because God has done this, here's what you should do now. In Romans, the, the first part is the, the first 11 chapters. And the last part of that, he's talking about God's mercy and then he comes to chapter 12 and he says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Why should you be holy? Because God has shown you his mercy. Gratitude for what God has done is the right motive for obedience. If your child says to you, you know, I'll obey you, not because I want to, but because I know I'm supposed to obey you as my parent. Well, that's, that's okay, that's good, that's duty, and duty's a good thing. But if your child says, Mom, I know you worked really hard to make this dinner, and it was really good. Thanks for doing that for us. Is there anything I can do to help you? That's better. <laughs> because that comes from a place of gratitude. Right? And the same is true with God. Gratitude for what he's done for us is the right motive for obeying his law. Look with me at the next verse, verse 118. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. John Calvin comments on this verse and he says, After the Lord God has patiently tolerated 
all these abusers of his merciful loving kindness for a long time, it is inescapable, but he must utterly destroy them in the end. God's justice is inevitable. It's inescapable. It will happen. Their cunning is in vain. Why is God's justice inevitable or inescapable? Part of it is because he's holy. He always does what's right. And so in the end, any violation of his righteousness has to be dealt with. And so he will do that. But it also helps us to remember it's not just that his holiness is unchanging, but his power is unlimited. He can do it. He's never going to be prevented from dealing with the wicked. There's nothing that he can't respond to, that he can't deal with. In Isaiah chapter 2, God is warning about judgments that are coming. And here's what he says in verse 12. He says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up. It shall be brought low. In other words, that day is coming. And then the next several verses go on about, it's like a list of all the kinds of people that God is going to bring low. And then in verse 17, it says, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That day's coming. God will judge because their cunning is in vain. Let me read for you Psalm 2. We've read this a number of times uh, in recent months. It's such a powerful psalm to help us get perspective on the wickedness that goes on in this world. Here's what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, there's wicked people in the world and a lot of them are in charge and they all decide that they're going to disobey God's law. Now, what is God's response? Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's talking about Jesus. Jesus will reign, and he will reign over all of the rulers of this world. And then it's as if now Jesus is speaking. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So all of it will be given to Christ. And then it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The judgment will happen because their cunning is in vain. And then the psalm finishes with some advice. If all that the psalmist has said is true, and you're one of those kings of the earth, you're one of the rulers, how should you respond to this? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Their cunning is in vain. Sooner or later, Spurgeon says, God will set his foot on those who turn their foot from his commands. It has always been so and it always will be so to the end. The next verse then kind of continues the same idea. Verse 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. Dross is the impurities in the metal. So when you melt the metal down, the dross kind of rises up to the surface and then they skim that off and they get rid of it because it's not supposed to be part of the metal. For a while, it appears to be part of the metal, 
It's kind of like the stories that Jesus told. He said, it's like the sheep and the goats. In the end, the judgment is going to separate them out. And the sheep will be on one side and the goats on the other. Or the wheat and the tares. You've got them growing together in the same field. And the farmer might let them grow so that he doesn't tear up the wheat when he takes out the tares. But in the end, he's going to separate them out. There's going to be a judgment. The wheat and the tares will be separated. There's unbelievers in the church, and that separation will happen. There's people in society that seem to do the right thing, but they don't really follow Jesus. And in the end, all of that will come out because God's judgment, God's justice is inevitable. And all the wicked of the earth, he will discard like dross. So what should we do? How should we respond to that? Therefore, I love your testimonies. I should have confidence in God's word. I should submit to Jesus like we just saw in Psalm 2. The response of the godly, when you think about these things, there's two parts to it. On the one side, we should rejoice in the judgment that God brings on the wicked. That might sound strange. Really, we should rejoice when the wicked are judged? Listen to Psalm 58, verses 10 and 11. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. When God judges the wicked, it is right for God's people to rejoice in that. Not because we want to see people suffer, but because God's display of his justice is glorious. God's holy. It's right for him to do that. It's a display of who he is, and we should honor that. If there was a particularly horrible crime, let's say somebody does something horrible to a young child, and the offender is caught, and the case against him is clear, there's no argument against it, the case is presented in court, it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, and the judge says, We're just going to give you a warning this time. Please don't do anything like that again. How would you respond? You'd be angry. You'd be frustrated because justice isn't being done. It would bother you. Well, we should rejoice when justice is done and the wicked are punished. Not because we take delight in the person suffering, but because justice is godlike. It reflects his character. It's righteous and good. That's one side. We rejoice when God judges the wicked. The flip side is that we rejoice in God's mercy. Because we deserve his judgment. And if he's shown us mercy, then that's cause for rejoicing too. Listen to how the two are related. This is Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, so that's the wicked being judged, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. Paul says, when you see the wicked judged, You should rejoice in God's justice, but you should also rejoice because it shows you the gloriousness of the mercy that God has shown to you because you deserved the same punishment. But rejoice that God has shown you mercy. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. And then verse 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. Is it wrong to fear God? Well, a proper fear or respect of God is appropriate. Thomas Manton points out, thinking about your emotions here, he says, religion does not nullify, but rather sanctifies your affections. In other words, we're not learning to fear in the wrong way. We're learning to fear the right thing in the right way. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. And, and the, the application that I would, I would encourage you to in this verse is, how does the psalmist know to fear God? Well, he's got to be looking at the judgments that God has given in the past. 
he's observing that God has judged and he's learning from it. So the past is a warning for us. Jesus talks to the people and he, he has a, a conversation where he kind of reviews the history of, of um, Noah and the people in Noah's day and Lot, how judgment was coming. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. Jesus is saying, learn your history. Pay attention. In Jeremiah 7, God warns the people there's judgment coming. And he says, remember Shiloh. Remember what I did at Shiloh, where God's tabernacle was, but judgment came anyway. They thought they had the security of being the place where God's presence was. But judgment fell anyway because of their sin. In 1 Corinthians, Paul warns the people. And listen to what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 10. I'm not going to read it all, but he gives a reminder about how God judged the wilderness generation when they left Egypt. You know, they had seen God's mighty deliverance, but then they rebelled against God and they complained and they sinned. And, and Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. See, that's that's what the psalmist is saying here when he says, my, my flesh trembles for fear of you. I'm afraid of your judgments. He's looking back in the past and he sees God's judgment against sin. And he says, I don't want to go there. He's learning from the example of the past. That same passage in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul then kind of goes on and he gives another reminder about that generation's sin. And then he says it again. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. See, this is in part the value of history. God wants us to know history so that we can learn from it. How many times all through scripture does God say, remember, remember what I did. Remember the judgment that fell on those people. Remember, remember Lot's wife. Remember, remember. He's pointing back and telling you to remember because the past is a warning for us. But it's not just a warning. It's also an encouragement. So when God redeemed his people out of Egypt, what did the people do when they got to the other side of the Red Sea? They sang a song commemorating what God had done. So Exodus chapter 15 begins by saying, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. They learned from history, right? They looked back and they said, look at what God did. We need to remember that because that tells us that he's our God. And so we need to have the right kind of fear of God that comes from understanding what God has done in the past. Well, those are our verses from Psalm 119 this morning. As we kind of widen out our view now to consider God's law a little bit more, the principle that we've been looking at is this. In Christ, the ceremonial law is still valid today. And we know that that sounds strange because we didn't come this morning with a lamb to sacrifice. And you didn't worry about the tag on your clothes and whether it was a, a cotton polyester blend that you were wearing this morning when you put your clothes on. And if you're going home this, this afternoon for lunch, you might have ham or bacon and that's okay. We don't follow all of those ritual laws that they did in the Old Testament. So how are we to understand this? There is a very important sense in which we need to understand that those ceremonial laws are still valid because the meaning of those laws hasn't changed. That's what I want you to see this morning. Just to kind of review, we, we kind of looked at the, the law of God and, and just visualized it this way. We have the law underneath the law, which is just saying that's God's character. It's, it's who God is. And so when he made the world, the world is in alignment with who God is. And so the laws that operate in this world are in alignment with his character. It's the real, this is reality. It's the world the way it is. And then we saw, right, when, when Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest command? The, his answer was, greatest command is, love you, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, the foundation, the greatest commands of all is love God and love others. And then if you were to say, well, what does that look like in practice? It looks like 
the Ten Commandments. Right? Worship God, don't worship idols, don't take his name in vain. That's loving God. Don't bear false witness, don't steal, don't murder. That's loving your neighbor. So love God, love others. That's what it looks like in practice. Now, when a whole society lives that way, what does that look like? Well, that's the civil law. It gives more details about how this gets lived out in the process of community life. And when it goes bad, when someone breaks one of those laws, what do we do about it? What are the guidelines for the government? Well, that's the case laws. So here's how you make restitution if, you, if you've broken something or stolen something or whatever the case may be. That's the case laws. The other side of this here, the ceremonial law, is, is answering the question, okay, if God gave his law and his demand is perfection and we've broken that law, now what? How, how does that relationship get fixed? And the ceremonial law illustrates it for us. So we have the laws of separation. That's what we're going to talk about today, how God's people are distinct from the world. We have the laws of temple worship. That's like bringing a sacrifice, right? It's a blood atonement. That's what pays the penalty for sin. That points us forward to Jesus. And we have festivals and holidays. The cycle of time for Israel was revealing the history of what God would do to save his people. So all of the law kind of fits together, hangs together in that way. Now, we've been looking at the laws of temple worship because we were looking at the priest and the atonement. Today, we're going to look at these laws of separation. What I want you to do is this. Turn to Leviticus chapter 11. We are, we're going to look at a number of passages today. I'm going to make you turn to eight different passages. We're going to take two whirlwind tours of two different kinds of ritual laws, and then we're going to land on one book in the New Testament at the end of it all that will kind of tie it all together for us. So our first whirlwind tour is going to be about clean and unclean animals or food. So you're turning to Leviticus chapter 11. And as you're turning there, let me just kind of introduce this. These laws are for Israel as a nation. Clearly, we don't follow these laws and rituals today. But why? What has changed? What are we still supposed to learn from these things? And the main point I want you to get is this. Christ does not set aside the meaning of these laws, but he makes the old way of observing them irrelevant because the circumstances have changed. So the ritual, the outside part, has been done away with, but the meaning of the laws still stands. Leviticus chapter 11 Look at the very beginning of the chapter with me. Leviticus 11, 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. So that introduces the chapter, and it's basically just saying, I'm going to give you the guidelines for what animals you may eat and what animals you may not eat. And most of the rest of the chapter is giving the specifics. So it's things like, does it have a split hoof or not? Does it chew the cud or not? If it's a fish, does it have fins and scales or not? If it's a bird, is it a scavenger or not? And you get all the way down to the end and look with me at verse 44. Verse 44, Leviticus 11:44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Okay, holy means unique set apart. And God is telling his people, you're going to be unique among all the people on the earth. You're going to be set apart. And the reason for it is you belong to me and I'm holy. So you're going to be holy. You're going to be different. You're going to be separate. You're going to be distinct. Keep reading. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground. Why? To make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. So this is about holiness and distinction. You be holy because I'm holy and you're going to be distinct from the other people on the earth. 
Turn with me now to Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14. You go over two books to the right. Deuteronomy 14. And while the last chapter was titled Clean and Unclean Animals, this one is Clean and Unclean Food, but you'll see that it is very much the same idea. Deuteronomy 14. Start by looking at verse 2. Deuteronomy 14, 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then we have a whole bunch of specifics, pretty much the same kind of thing that was there in Leviticus 11. And then go down to verse 21. Verse 21. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, that adds something to the picture. Because God is saying, this is not okay for you to eat, but it is okay for the other people to eat. That tells you there's nothing wrong with the thing itself. It's not that the thing itself is immoral, the animal. It's that God is making a distinction. There's some rules or laws that the thing itself is the problem, right? So don't murder. Why? Well, murder itself is evil. That's not an arbitrary law that God gave. This law, though, is different in that the thing itself is not immoral. Because God says it's okay for other people to eat it, just not you. He's making a distinction. That's the point of these laws. It's not about the things. It's about the distinction, the separateness, the holiness. Okay? Now, back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 20. If, if you were doing the um, sword drill and you know, racing to find your way around the Bible, this is good training for you this morning. We're going to a number of different places. So back to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus 20. And here, look at verses 22 to 26. Leviticus 20, 22 to 26. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, listen, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground calls. Why? Which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So there you see that the purpose of all of the unclean and clean distinctions is God is telling them, I've made you separate. Therefore, you're going to keep clean and unclean separate. And when you keep clean and unclean separate, it's going to bring to your mind the fact that I've made you separate. That's the point of it. It's pointing out this distinction. Now, jump ahead with me for our last stop on whirlwind tour number one to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 10. The book of Acts chapter 10. If you were thinking about these distinctions between clean and unclean animals, maybe your mind already wandered to this story. Acts chapter 10, this is the story of Peter and Cornelius and the vision that Peter has. Now, starting in verse 9, it has the story of Peter's vision. I'm just going to summarize a little bit here. He sees a sheet coming down from heaven with all of these animals in it. And there's unclean animals. And Peter is told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter objects. He says, I can't. Those are unclean. 
I'm not supposed to do that. And God says, don't call common what I have made clean. And that happens three times. And then we read this in verse 28. Peter's talking to Cornelius, who is a Gentile, so he's unclean, okay, in the eyes of a Jew. You, if you were a Jew, you don't sit down at a meal with Gentiles because you're supposed to keep separate, clean and unclean, okay? Verse 28, Peter says, he says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Cornelius then says, hey, we're ready to hear the message that you have. And jump down to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter understands now that those rituals about clean and unclean was all representative. It was a picture. It was an illustration of what God was teaching about peoples. And now the separation that had been there between Jew and Gentile, Peter says, that's not what this was ultimately about because God's done away with that distinction. But the distinction that God is making is those who fear him versus those who don't. Those who fear him from any nation, every nation, are acceptable. They're clean. Those who don't fear him are unclean. That's the ultimate distinction that God is making. Okay, so much for whirlwind tour number one. Now, that was clean and unclean animals. The next one that I want you to see is other laws about separation, and we'll start with Leviticus 19. You're at least going to know where to find Leviticus. Leviticus 19. As you look at this chapter, look at the first two verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's the context now. And then he goes into various ritual laws for about 30 some odd verses. And I'm just going to drop you in in the middle. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. So Leviticus 19, verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. What's the point? Separation, distinction, don't mix. Why? Because God is holy. He wants his people to be holy. And these are illustrations about keeping things separate or distinct. Now turn over to Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22. So again, two books to the right. If you know what Deuteronomy means, the word means the second giving of the law. So a lot of what we see in Leviticus gets stated again in slightly different words in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy chapter 22 if you look at the first 12 verses, you have various kind of ritual laws that are given there. And I want you to look specifically with me at verses 9 through 11. 22, 9 through 11. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. So there we have the same kind of thing again. Don't mix. Keep them separate. Keep them distinct. Now, where does this go in the story of the Bible? Well, let's finish this whirlwind tour in 2 Corinthians. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see what Paul does with this. We already saw what Peter did 
with his vision and the story of Cornelius. And by the way, remember the scripture reading that we began the service with this morning? That was Peter who was writing and he was saying, be holy for I am holy, God says. And so now you should live this way. He's, he's learned these lessons and he's writing it to the people that he's, he's encouraging. Now we're looking at Paul. Okay, 2 Corinthians is Paul writing. Starting in chapter 6, verse 14, here's what Paul writes. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So he says, don't be unequally yoked. That word yoked, he's referring to what we just read in Deuteronomy 22. Don't yoke an ox and a donkey together. That Old Testament law about oxes and donkeys, Paul says, here's what it means. You don't yoke yourself with unbelievers. You see how those, those laws about separation and distinction were always pointing to God's people being separate or distinct from the nations. Those who fear God being separate from those who don't. So the imagery is the ox and the donkey. The meaning, verse 15, is that believers and unbelievers shouldn't be yoked together. The logic of it then in verse 16 is what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So if believers are the temple, then unbelievers should not be there with them. Think about the imagery. It's the temple. In the Old Testament, the Jews could go into the temple, but there was a court of the Gentiles on the outside, and that was as far as the Gentiles could go. There was a separation, a distinction. Now, Paul says, if you're a believer, Jew or Gentile, you are the temple, and you need to be distinct and separate from those who don't have the Spirit of God in them. So verse 17, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now he's quoting the Old Testament, but he's applying it directly to the church. He's saying that Old Testament law, that ritual, the point of it all along was that God's people are to be holy and distinct from those who don't fear God. So then, chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Be holy, for I am holy. Those who fear God are to be distinct. That's the meaning of it. Now, where I want to land this morning, understanding the meaning of this, is in Ephesians. So go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Two more books to the right. Ephesians chapter 2. And look with me at the first couple of verses starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." He's pointing back and saying, in the Old Testament, with all of those ritual laws about clean and unclean and keeping things separate and distinct, if you were a Gentile, you were on the outside. You were separated from the people of God. But now you've been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Because what Jesus did brings people into the family of God by faith, not by flesh. So, if you pick it up in verse 14, 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, the phrase that we need to think about there is where he says, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Let's start with the word law. We've said the word law is a broad word. It means different things in different places. You always have to understand the context. Here, it means the principle or system. So it's the whole system of commandments expressed in ordinances. The system of ritual laws of things like clean and unclean animals, or mixing the fibers, or not plowing with an ox and a donkey, that whole ritual system, that law of commandments. And it was expressed in ordinances. That word ordinances also means decrees. It would be like the word in Luke 2, when a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, or in Acts 17, when the, it's complained that the, the people of the church are acting against the decrees of Caesar, the point is, it's a, a decree like that is a law that, that has its power because of the lawgiver, not because of some inherent morality. Don't murder. That law doesn't depend on who says it, because murdering is wrong in and of itself. But other laws are just house rules, like if you have the rule in your house that you don't wear your shoes in the house, that's not an immoral thing to wear shoes in the house. But if the people who own the house, your parents, say don't wear your shoes in the house, then those are the house rules and you have to obey them. That's a decree. That's an ordinance. It's not right or wrong in and of itself, but the power of the rule comes from the people who made the rule. The same way, that's what this is talking about, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. It was Israel's house rules. Things like, does the fish have scales and fins or not? Is this from a pig? Is this from a cow? Is all of those kinds of things. Those are the house rules. And when it says that this has been abolished, we have to be careful, again, with the word, what does this mean that it's been abolished? Because if you remember Matthew 5, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill it. So why does Paul now say that Jesus abolished the law? Here's the answer. It's two different words. They're not using the same word. When Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, he means completely do away with this word for abolish means to take those house rules and, and to, like putting a car out of gear or making it idle or um, temporarily or uh, just kind of removing the force of it because the circumstances have changed. Like if you had the house rule that said no shoes in the house, but then you went and rented a cabin and mom walks in and she goes, the floor is filthy. Keep your shoes on. Okay, well, your, your family's house rules have changed because the circumstances have changed. So it, it was, the, the, the rule about shoes wasn't a moral or immoral thing. It just had to do with the circumstances at the time. In the same way, that's how the, these house rules for Israel have been abolished, according to Paul, it's not that the law or the meaning of the law has been done away with. It's that the outer rituals are put on the shelf because the circumstances have changed. The meaning of the law still stands because Paul takes that law and he applies it to the church. Don't be unequally yoked, right? He says that to the Corinthians. Here in Ephesians, he's talking about how we've all been made one in Christ. And so he's pointing out that these ritual laws have been set aside and the Gentiles don't need to adopt all of these laws. Look at how it continues. Verse 17. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the result. You are now fellow citizens, members of the household. You're a holy temple. That separation of Jew and Gentile is gone. So is the ceremonial law still valid today? Well, in a sense, all those rituals are gone, and so we can say no. But in a very important sense, we have to recognize that the meaning has not changed. It's like the illustration of the model car. Right? I'm going to bring it up again. If you ordered the car for 2024, the next year's model, and the dealer says, okay, your car is ordered, you've got, the, you know, you've got the, the convertible and it's bright yellow and all that, and here's your little model matchbox car that's exactly like the one that you ordered. You take this home, when we give you a phone call and tell you that your car is ready, you bring the model back and turn it in and we'll give you your car. Well, that little model car is not going to get you to Columbus because that's not what it's for. But when you get the real thing, it'll get you where you need to go. In the same way, these ritual laws about clean and unclean, they were never going to accomplish holiness. They were an illustration. They were showing the people that they're supposed to be distinct. They're supposed to be different. The reality has come now in Christ. The dividing wall has been broken down. We are one in Christ. Those who fear God are to be holy because God is holy, separate and distinct. From the rest. By the way, if you're still there in Ephesians 2, remember what I said about Paul's letters, how he always starts with the, the indicative, what Christ has done or what God has done in Christ, and then he tells you what you should do? The same thing is true in Ephesians. Six chapters, the first half, the first three chapters is all what God has done for you. Then when you get to chapter 4, notice how it begins. This is Ephesians 4. Look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? He says, look, because everything I wrote in chapters 1 through 3 is true, because now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, because he's made us both one, because he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, because you are fellow saints and citizens with the members of the household of God, because you are a holy temple in the Lord, because of all those things, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Which is just another way of saying, be holy. For I am holy. The meaning of those laws hasn't changed. The observance of them has. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We don't have to worry. You can go home and eat ham with a good conscience. But you are to be distinct. You are to be different. You are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God has put on your life. What does that look like? Well, read chapters 4 through 6 if you want to see, right? So, verse 25 of chapter 4, put away falsehood, speak truth with your neighbor, be angry and do not sin, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. You can keep going, chapter 5, walk in love, here's what it looks like to live holy as far as wives and husbands, here's what it looks like in the relationship of children and parents, here's what it looks like slaves and masters, here's what it looks like to live a holy life. You should be different. Your home should be different. Your marriage should be different. Your relationship with your kids should be different because you belong to God. He's holy. 
And so you should be holy. When we looked at verse 117 of Psalm 119 this morning, we talked about gratitude being the principle or motive for obedience. That's what you're seeing here in Ephesians. Because of what God has done, walk worthy, live holy. And that was the point of those ceremonial laws of separation all along. Live holy, unique, distinct, separate as the people of God. Why? Because God redeemed you. He separated you. He rescued you. He saved you. Now, go live like it. In response. In gratitude. While all the rituals are now out of gear, all the food has been made clean, and you can wear the mixed fibers and all of that, the reality of holiness has not changed. The shadow's gone. The reality is here. We are to be holy because God is holy. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the salvation that you have accomplished for us in Christ. I pray that we would have a desire in our hearts to obey your law, not because we're trying to earn your favor, but because you've already given it. You've redeemed us. You've rescued us. And in gratitude, we want to live a holy life. If we struggle with that, if we struggle with with living in a way that follows your laws, maybe what it is is that we need to spend more time looking at the cross and remembering what you have done for us. We saw in Psalm 119 the value of looking at history because the past is a warning and the past is an encouragement. And when we look back at the history of what Jesus has done for us, it should result in gratitude. The mercy that you have shown to us should be motivation for us to live a holy life. So as we look to the cross, as we think on the sacrifice that you have made for us, I pray that you would use that this morning, not to create guilt in us, but to to create gratitude. When we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not a time for us to just examine our hearts and just list out all of the reasons that we have failed, although it is good for us to recognize our sins and to repent from them and to turn from them. But the point of this meal is that you've redeemed us. Help us to yet again be overwhelmed with the redemption that Christ has accomplished for us and in joy and rejoicing and gratitude may we go out and live a holy life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.